2: Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Cantoneo with Sarah Eisen, Mike Santoli, a post-9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer and David Faber have the morning off. Futures under some pressure this morning with bond yields still flirting with these cycle highs. Oil near 90, the president in Israel, and the market very sensitive to headlines. Plenty of earnings to get to as well. Our roadmap's going to begin with a big day for corporate results. United with soft guidance. p beats higher prices there. Morgan Stanley topping estimates. Netflix and Tesla after the bell.
3: Plus, China's outlook. Q3 economic growth coming in better than expected. JP Morgan City and Nomura all boosting their forecasts on the data. And the NVIDIA headwinds. Morgan Stanley and Citigroup lowering price targets on the stock after new U.S. restrictions on chip sales to China. Shares down nearly 2% ahead of the open.
2: Let's get to the markets in this busy morning on the earnings front. We're sort of graduating, Sarah, from the big banks, although we got Morgan Stanley today, into some of the regionals and obviously some of the more consumer names today as well.
3: Yeah, kind of a mixed picture across the board. I think front and center is still this move in bond yields that we've been seeing, especially on the back of yesterday's move higher. I mean, the two-year yield got to 5.2%. Above 5.20. So yeah. we, so these are very high levels. And it also makes you wonder with everything going on in the world and with investors so focused, I think, on the geopolitics and figuring out, does Iran enter the fray? There's more saber-rattling overnight. We see that in the price of oil. Are treasuries acting like a safe haven? No. They're not. They were last week a little bit, but they really haven't been. And does that say something about treasuries and the relative safety? Because we are seeing things like gold and the Swiss franc. And the japanese yen all move up or is it just that investors are sort of hoping that this doesn't escalate any further yeah. and that we have a more diplomatic solution i'm not sure it doesn't there look is like that one from this
1: school of thought that says well you don't know how high yields would be without a safe haven bid, but there's no way to prove or disprove that the way i would look at it is if you look also through history when you do have these sort of shocks geopolitical or otherwise the bid in treasuries historically is not a particularly durable one so you get this kind of reflex buying of bonds, yields go down, maybe it's over a couple, three weeks. It's not usually a new trend. That said, whatever's happening, if there is a flow through to markets, it seems like it's on the uh, oil supply front uh, or generally inflationary reflationary around the world as opposed to the opposite. Uh, But I think the market is also trying to do its best to look through what it can look through. Um, So it's this really indecisive range. The S&P 500 for the last month has been trapped in. It's about a 5% range, 4,200 to 4,400. Four times in the last week or so, it's gotten up to the upper end of that range and stalled out exactly at the resistance level everyone has been watching. But it's been volatile within that range because the earnings have been on balance okay the economy's strong one of the reasons for yields going up seemingly is we're taking recession risk out of the curve so it's it's a tough mix to try to figure out <laughs> you know the the way out uh, of this uh, of this range we
3: are taking recession right? I'm, I'm sure you saw Atlanta <laughs> you say it to me Atlanta fed gdp goes up to yeah. 5.4% on the back of those strong retail sales, with the control group also showing strength.
2: Yeah, it's been funny to watch uh, the desks chase Atlanta Fed. I yep. know J.P. Morgan, uh, their estimate for Q3 GDP back in July was 0.5. Yeah. Then it went to 3.5. Now it's 4.3. So closing the gap with what Atlanta has long been seeing. Uh, interesting take on the consumer today it comes out of Proctor where they do reiterate the guidance. Uh, they see uh, fiscal 24 earnings uh, well above expectations, organic up seven, uh, pricing uh, up seven volume, still down one, not seeing an the whole story
3: is they're still able to get pricing, whether they're just offsetting commodities or squeezing a little more out of the consumer. The volume growth is not there. But Procter has been outperforming the staples and this big swoon that we saw in the staples in the past three months. And it proved why, because it's still seeing some strong growth. The CEO, John Mueller, was on Squawk Box this morning. Here's what he said about the ability to keep on passing higher prices to the consumers.
4: I don't think pricing is an endless well and and you know we're pricing just to
1: to not even fully recover uh, commodity costs.
3: So not an endless well, what do you do with that when the, the growth has been in pricing? Well the thinking with, with companies like PNG and others is if they pull back on those high prices, volumes will rise and and there also there's a there's a school of thought on the analyst community that PNGs in much better shape this time than the 2008-2009 recession where everybody traded down into private label because they've made a lot of changes in the company they have more options across different price tiers that sort of thing they're they're more lean they've gotten rid of a lot of the brands since then and Nick Modi, at least, of RBC, I was reading his preview note last night, thinks they deserve this sort of premium spot within the Staples universe. It's
2: interesting because the Times today has a piece about private label food and beverage, which is yeah. a percentage of grocery dollars, is now 20.6 before the uh, pandemic. It was 18.7. So there is some share. There's some share shift going on in private label.
1: Definitely. There's also been this pattern of P&G uh, outperforming anything food based staples. Right. We know that story. People concerned not just about pricing and food, but the. Uh, the, the Obesity the drug, Obesity drug risk. Not cutting yeah, into our, our toothpaste really and,
3: and toilet paper exactly. just yet.
1: So it's a weird haven. Also, the valuation on P&G is moderated to some degree. It's like low 20s on a P.E. forward as opposed to where it used to be in the mid-20s. So, yeah, it's, it's sort of uh, uh, in the zone of where people can find a little stability.
3: I mean, the biggest negative in the report is that now they expect a bigger hit from foreign exchange because you've had this strong dollar. And that, that is largely expected and, the, and it's, you know, the market's not punishing them for that and, and they reiterated guidance to your point, but an extra percentage hit on FX for P&G will lead to others having to call for the same thing because anybody that does bulk of the business abroad is feeling it. Yeah.
2: Morgan Stanley is probably the other big name of the day. Uh, profit down nine, but 138 does beat 130. Revenue ahead. Uh, miss on FIC. Uh, IB down 27. They did buy back one and a half billion in the quarter. Uh, and Gorman did talk about the environment right now being mixed. Take a listen. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, they, but uh, they did point out as well, uh, clients, a big uh, percentage of their assets in cash or cash equivalents. Yes. And that some of the M&A announcements will begin to pay off in the, in the next quarter.
1: Yeah, there's no way, uh, you know, to, to escape the, uh, the lack of deals. So investment banking, we knew was going to be weak. It was weak uh, on a year-over-year basis. Uh, I do think the wealth management side, it missed a little bit. You know, they beat on the, on the final print. But, you know, as of June 30th, the estimate was like 156. Uh, for uh, for Morgan Stanley. It comes in, you know, 138 beating, right? So that's been the dynamic where you've had this downscaling of expectations and then they managed to, uh, to beat it. So it's a decent performance, but the idea of clients, um, you know, staying in cash, Morgan Stanley not making much off of T-bills uh, when it's in the client accounts and things like that is... Uh, you know, it's sort of a similar story. It's, it's uh, the the, finan- the fixed income trading side of things. I mentioned yesterday when it came to Goldman, it's often a little bit of a zero sum game across the street. You get J P Morgan, B of A, uh, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley uh, reporting. You net it all out, and you usually get a couple of better than expected, a couple of worse because it is sort of a a flow game quarter to quarter. The market doesn't pay a tremendous amount of attention to it. Wealth management's half the business now and it's doing fine it's just not growing that fast because it can't it can't grow that much faster than than markets are better appreciating. performance
3: from goldman on the investment banking than morgan stanley right
1: seems like it yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's again it's like a three-month window of deal closings and and who got the uh the scarcity of underage you know when investment banking is really humming you can't just name the four deals that happened in the quarter. Right. Like it's just there's so many of them and you can't keep track. So that's why, you know. Right. We know uh, Goldman
3: had the arm IPO. We know they had the exactly. Instacart IPO. That was what? Half the IPO. And there's not a lot saw. else
1: to feed on. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, with 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 the banks overall, they, they were beats and they, you know, collectively, I think, spoke to an economy that's not in recession, but is slowing. That's certainly the message I got from Brian Moynihan of Bank of America yesterday says, you know, because of the Fed actions and because of everything going on, like inflation, he's starting to see the consumer slow. When it comes to Bank of America, the underperformance guys has been on this held to maturity portfolio that they have, where they they just have a lot of the deposits they invested in long term treasuries. And so I asked Brian Moynihan yesterday to address that and to, to tell us what he's telling investors that are concerned.
1: No. At the end of the day, that that comes from the trillion nine of of deposits we have, and only trillion dollars alone. So. Basically, two years ago plus, we made a decision to put some of that money to work, and we basically split it into two pieces, a short-term piece and a long-term piece. So, in the aggregate, 47% of our securities in cash we hold is in really short-term, overnight type of investments, and and 53% is long-term. And that's in the held maturity portfolio because those marks we knew would come, and we then don't have to take them through capital, and they pulled apart. These are government-guaranteed securities, so uh, the team's done a good job of managing. And, in fact, our NII grew this quarter faster than we thought. We upped our guidance as you said earlier. And that's because the securities yield of all that activity extracts the value that deposits for our shareholders and continues to grow.
3: He's clearly been sending this message to investors. I said, is there any risk they'd have to mark these to market, which yeah. is, of course, would be losses. And he said, no,
1: no, no, no there is. I mean, so I having this is, capital, those fears. No this to is do why
3: be, yeah. I mean, Bank of America is underperformed.
1: It is absolutely underperformed. The uh, if there's an upside, it's that the, the market knows it it kind of knows what the bond market's doing at any given moment. It knows the effect on the balance sheet. It knows that the, you know, that B of A is just going to have to kind of allow that to work its way through as the, as the bonds mature.
3: Well, geopolitics is certainly front and center. President Biden has arrived in Israel where he is pledging support for that nation in its war against Hamas and weighing in on yesterday's deadly Gaza hospital blast. NBC's Jay Gray live in Tel Aviv with the latest Jay.
4: Hey there, and the latest for the president is he is right now meeting with family members of some of the victims of the attack that started uh, this war, some of the first responders and some of the families of those that are being held hostage right now. He did begin his day here in Tel Aviv uh, with a meeting with Benjamin Netanyahu and his war cabinet, but it's the meetings he won't take that may help to define what happens on this trip. He was expected to have a a summit with Arab allies. and then make a quick trip to Jordan before returning to Washington. That is not going to happen after an explosion overnight at a hospital in Gaza that killed hundreds there. Hamas blaming Israel, saying it was an airstrike that uh, led to that blast. Israel saying there was a failed rocket launch by Islamic Jihad. And so that back and forth has kind of changed the dynamic of not only this trip, but the global view of what's happening in the region right now. A part of the reason that the president had hoped to speak with those uh, Arab leaders is to damp down what are growing concerns and actually activity when it comes to this uh, war potentially expanding to another front and we're seeing some of that along the border with Lebanon right now there have been casualties Israeli soldiers have died as well as Hezbollah fighters uh, we know that Israel is building up troops as well as equipment along that border and so that's something that everyone's watching very closely and is very concerned about one other quick point about the president's trip he was here also, the White House said, to really try and get some of that humanitarian aid that's so desperately needed into Gaza, two million or so caught in the crossfire in all of this and haven't seen uh, water, food, medicine, or fuel deliveries for quite some time. And he was intending, the president, to, to speak about that at every stop along the way. But with things changing, it will be interesting, guys, to see where that part of this equation ends up, because it's certainly not the primary focus after what happened at that hospital overnight.
3: It's interesting, Jay, that that we keep anticipating this potential ground invasion from the Israelis into Gaza, and it hasn't happened yet. What, What do we know at this point?
4: Well, all that we've been told from the IDF is the fact that they're going to do this when they believe it's the time is right and and that they haven't been there yet. There was some speculation that weather may have thwarted it a bit earlier in the week. And then you've got the visit of the president, and I think most agree uh, that this would not happen while he was on the ground in Israel, though uh, both the IDF and the White House said that the president's presence won't change their strategy or how they enact that strategy during this war. Uh, But you would think you're absolutely right with all the talk. Uh, that this uh, would be bound to happen in the next 24 to 48 hours. But we've thought that before, and there have been indications that that might be the case before, and it still hasn't happened. One other quick point on that, when pushed, IDF commanders say uh, that by no means does this delay mean that it's not going to happen.
2: Jay, appreciate that very much. Uh, talk soon, I hope. Uh, Jay Gray joining us uh, from Israel this morning. When we come back, yep. China's in focus as well. Economic growth there did beat expectations. Meantime, Nvidia shares extending their declines in the wake of these tighter AI chip restrictions uh, on on Chinese imports. Take a look at the pre-market here. We'll get to uh, Nvidia, UAL, Travelers, Abbott, ASML, and some others when we come back.
4: You seek the key.
3: A lot to talk about with China today. We've got some new data out of the country. The economy turns out grew faster than expected in the third quarter. Eunice Yun in Beijing with more, which comes against more property troubles as well, Eunice.
5: Yeah, that's right, Sarah. Uh, Not only did the Q3 uh, GDP growth figure beat estimates um, coming in at 4.9%, but it also showed that the economy here has been growing quarter on quarter. So there was a lot of uh, hope that was lifted there uh, from this set of numbers. Um, Also, analysts are are quite fixated on a couple of data points, which they find encouraging. Uh, Consumer loans, which is seen as a bit of a proxy for uh, mortgages, came in at uh, $44 billion. That was a bump. Um, Also, the uh, retail sales figures um, came in uh, better than expected, as did the industrial output figures. Unemployment eased to 5 uh, percent uh, from 5.2 percent in August. Uh, there are still signs, though, as you can imagine, of fragility in the economy, um, as well as potential headwinds. A private investment, this was a figure that a lot of people keep watching uh, because it is g- seen as a gauge for how pessimistic or optimistic uh, the private sector is. And that showed a further slowdown from the the summer down 0.6 percent year-on-year, year-to-date. Also, the uh, fixed asset investment uh, number more broadly missed. And then property investment is still looking very weak. Uh, So even so, uh, J.P. Morgan, as well as Nomura, both raised their outlooks for China's GDP uh, to slightly higher than the government's own uh, target for the year, Uh, The overall uh, property picture, though, is still a big question mark. The analysis has been that, okay, these stimulus measures that the government has put in place um, have been working uh, more or less, uh, but there are still major unknowns out there. For example, Country Garden, which is a huge real estate developer here, uh, looks as though it may be missing an offshore uh, a bond uh, payment deadline. It's not known yet, not clear, but of course, if it does default, then that's going to have a huge impact on the overall buyer sentiment here. Guys?
2: Eunice will talk in a bit maybe about uh, Xi's comments about decoupling and Belt and Road and Tim Cook in China as well. That's our Eunice Yoon uh, in Beijing. Let's move to NVIDIA, though, uh, extending losses in the pre-market a day after the White House did announce it's tightening curbs on AI chip exports to China. In the 8K, the company says the controls may impact product development and cause it to relocate certain operations. Meantime, both Citi and Morgan Stanley cut their targets on the stock. I think, Mike, MS goes from 630 to 600. Yeah. Uh, so of the high end of these uh, targets coming off the boil?
1: Moderating it, um, you know, this is a $300 stock like five months ago. Uh, so, <laughs> what it's doing right now is, is really uh, sort of testing the super aggressive uptrend once people started to get on the bandwagon for this unending seeming supply of, uh, or demand for the AI uh, GPUs. So, uh, it's interesting chart wise because everyone's sort of saying, well, this is either manageable or it was expected or they can get around it. Uh, and now it's in the guidance probably, yet the stock is still kind of iffy on the, uh, on the response to it. So it seems like, like this stock could go down to you know, 350 and still be in that uptrend in terms of the 200-day average. So it's, it's kind of amazing how, high, how much air was under it. The, the valuation, everyone's going to say, doesn't look crazy. 30 times earnings for you know, this company that's at the middle of the most exciting trend we have going. A little bit of scrutiny on what's implied in the out years of, of profit and revenue growth in the NVIDIA numbers. If you just sort of figure out like, how big the market has to get in a hurry and just how much uh, you know, kind of capital spending by the world is going to be dedicated, flowing through NVIDIA. Unknown if that's you know, something that we should be questioning at this point, but it is interesting. That uh, that you know we've stalled out here for
3: sure. But I think the common thread from the analyst, even though they're cutting numbers, and Morgan Stanley, as we just showed the the quote says this: it's still a top pick. They still love oh, the yeah. stock. They still think that it's manageable. Even though, as Morgan Stanley Anna says, this they, this is a more draconian—that's the word they use—measure when it comes to restricting chips for a region. They say that's driving 20 to 25 percent of demand for Nvidia, but they're still our top pick in semis.
1: Look, it's, it's, it's a re- set of restrictions that's designed not just to be kind of a gesture, it's seemingly, but as to actually try and curtail uh, the technological capacity of China to, to, to catch up. Well, I mean, it's, it's not a joke.
3: I know. It's not a joke. And overnight, you know, you mentioned she spoke at this Belt and Road celebration and initiative alongside his friend Putin, and he referenced it, that they're against unilateral sanctions and economic coercion and decoupling. Those were the words. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, Dear friend, I think, is the actual actual term. Right. Take a look at the pre-market. We'll get to some of the impact uh, these individual names are going to have on the indices. Futures were down triple digits on the Dow earlier. I would argue maybe close to session highs here. Still looking at a negative open in about eight minutes.
6: Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. Like Olu Shei, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com.
2: We mentioned AMD, I'm sorry, NVIDIA before the break-in. You can see some of the laggards on the NDX this morning going to revolve around the semiconductor space. ASML did warn about flat growth next year. Booking's down 42 in the recent quarter. That's going to open down almost 4%. We'll get the opening bell in about five minutes. Don't go away.
4: We're going to wind up this year, even with everything that's happened with Israel and with higher fuel prices spiking here in the fourth quarter. We're going to earn double what the consensus was at the start of the year. And and we look at this and say the world is developing almost exactly like we thought it would for aviation, both for United and for the rest of the industry. And and that development, frankly, the stress that's happening at the low end of the industry, is going to lead to changes in the industry and a restructuring that's going to leave us at a much better, sustainable much more structurally profitable industry. Uh, and we're, we're headed that way.
2: That's United Scott Kirby earlier on Squawk today. Shares are under some pressure as their guidance does overshadow uh, this quarterly beat. The oil picture, Mike, people probably understand, maybe surprised about their
1: reliance uh, in terms of OperNet yes. on routes to israel yep kirby characterizing it as of course uh... temporary or transient obviously it's not going to be suspended forever but yeah there was uh... the guidance given was sort of depending on how long the flights of tel aviv are at in the u.s are suspended um, and it is true that this year the company is going to earn a lot more than folks thought at the beginning of last year ten bucks a share is now where the full year estimates are coming in but it's also down to ten bucks a share for next year and the stock trades are four times that I mean, As much as he and others in the industry talk about how this is a different uh, airline industry, there is more discipline, there is not going to be that much capacity growth, you do have clear winners uh, in terms of United Delta, seemingly. Um, market doesn't believe it, or at least for now is saying this is the same old industry. We do think that this is maybe a cyclical peak in earnings uh, and you can't extrapolate. So that's the opportunity if you actually think things have changed and there's going to be more durable demand and they can be smart about earning returns off of it on a multi-year basis. Although
3: there wasn't really any big warning about demand. And in fact, no. you know, people took away from this, investors and analysts took away from this, strong business booking demand because the company was able to see that, that booking for business For Booking for trips in a short time frame, like in the next few months, did well, which is an indication that business travel is looking good. It's the fuel costs, right? They increased 20% since July,
2: and that's clearly a headwind for earnings. Yeah, it's kind of weird, given where we've been on airlines. The airline index, the XAL, is flirting with levels that you saw basically three months, four months after COVID really took off. Completely. It's it's, it's miles from pre-COVID levels. Let's get the opening bell here on the CNBC Real-Time Exchange and the big board. It's Carseller, Cars.com, celebrating its 25th anniversary. And at the NASDAQ, it's Victory Capital and Victory Shares in recognition of its two active fixed-income ETFs. Plenty of names to toss around this morning, but tonight, of course, is going to be interesting between Tesla and Netflix.
3: Yeah. performance into this report. Netflix has been the underperformer in big cap tech. Tesla, what, it's up more than 100% year-to-date. I feel like also with Tesla, you know, we know the delivery numbers. They came in a bit short, but that's because they're doing factory upgrades. Yeah. Um, but, so the question wow. is, can they maintain the guidance, and, and what does that do to delivery numbers in the fourth quarter? Because this ups the ante. And of course, it's the, uh, the gross margins. the, yeah, the gross margin, margin, margin side of it. Which have been pressured because of the price cuts. So think analysts want to see any indication that they may have bottomed out what they'll say about margins and pricing. Dan Ives of Webbush says that we're at the trough here when it comes to those price cuts and the margins.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're still seeing like not super demand at lower price points. That seems to be the bigger concern. A lot of focus on globally, what BYD is able to do market share wise. Netflix, for as much as it um, I think has been a very consensus, you know, somewhat crowded uh, call within the space. Also some, you know, moderation of expectations after the CFO comments uh, a few weeks ago, I guess it was, about slower start to the ad tier. Uh, and so it'd be interesting to see. I think that that stock has sort of come off the boil a little bit going into the numbers and maybe uh, folks have, uh, you know, gotten their expectations more in line with subgrowth that might come in mid Uh, I don't know what they're talking about, six million uh, uh, net ads or something like that might be okay. So um, we will see on that front. And what they have to say about free cash flow, I think been saying this about, you know, with going through these strikes uh, in in the media industry, if they're rethinking exactly how much they need to produce long term to feed the streaming platforms. And so some of the commentary there could be, could be interesting. Although I do say, Netflix. I think it's uh, maybe too much credit getting lumped in with the huge guys. It's still a 160 billion dollar market cap. It's like, you know, 10 to 15 percent the size of the real fangs. But um, it's it's still you know a bellwether for its own industry, if nothing else.
3: Some of the other names were well. I mean, first of all, Morgan Stanley at the bottom of the S and P. It's now down five and a quarter percent on that one. So that's actually the worst performance in yeah. terms of reaction from the big banks so far this. This cycle, Nasdaq's at the top, so this is very this is an earnings-driven kind of move here in, in the markets. JB Hunt, I noticed, is also at the bottom, yeah. even though they had some constructive things to say about the the freight, freight cycle and and bottoming out. It was a miss, and the stock is down seven point six percent.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, Morgan Stanley, I mean, it has it has some valuation to give. I think that's been the, the the little bit of the dynamic there is. It was already this acclaimed, Okay, wealth management, solid, higher returns, and then within that context, it's it's you know not quite there. It's like a twelve times earnings versus nine and a half for Goldman. They so still don't a have a CEO there.
3: too. Yeah, no next
1: CEO exactly. <laughs> still have this three
3: way succession battle doesn't help. We um, have we have a, a soundbite from the president of J B Hunt because a lot of people look at this one obviously as a. As an industrial barometer for what's happening in the, in that part of the economy, here's what the president says about the environment.
6: be clear on the overall environment, we are not at a point yet to say we're out of the freight recession, but we do feel like we're coming out of it or said differently. Directionally, we are seeing signs of things moving in a positive direction.
3: So, it sounded positive, but the stock stock reaction is quite negative. This is an industry that's also been, it's hard to exactly figure out what's going on with market share because of the yellow bankruptcy, oh, yeah. for instance, as well, kind of making changing the supply and demand for truckers.
2: Yeah, uh, altering the employment picture as well, uh, along with the strikes. Uh, we mentioned uh, the Tesla. We haven't really gotten to GM and sort of what they're saying about, I think, quote, evolving EV demand, yeah. uh, not no longer opening this uh, this EV factory. In Michigan, this has long been the thesis of some analysts like Adam Jonas yeah. and Morgan Stanley that uh, the pressure uh, of the strike and the realization that combustion engines still churn off a ton of cash, not to mention gas prices that that haven't exactly gone to the moon right. would force some of the D3 to uh, adjust their their adoption curve. It starts to the
1: risk reward of of, of really committing uh, in an extreme way to to the transition so it comes into further relief. I think that's true. Um, it's definitely been part of the bookcase of Tesla that. You know, there's going to be this innovators' dilemma problem with the legacy guys, um, especially at the lower price points. It's not as profitable or predictable. But we'll, you know, I mean, we'll see. I, I think ultimately, GM and Ford and Stellantis want to get to a place where they can be a little more agnostic as to what kind of, you know, powertrain the, the customers want, um, and uh, they're not there yet. But I think that's that ultimately, you have to be playing in all those areas, whether it's you know, hybrid EV and Uh, and internal combustion to to make it work. But they have bigger problems, I think, than uh, the long-term EV demand. (laughs) Right. Meanwhile, um, Rivian, Amazon, uh, Amazon
2: says they now have 10,000 Rivian EVs in their commercial fleet. They had about half of that back in July. The plan, of course, is to eventually get to 100K by 2030. Rivian stock not not reacting necessarily, but it seems like it's happening on the commercial side uh, in addition to the consumer side.
1: Yeah, it's happening on the commercial side. When you have an anchor purchaser with a bigger mission to try and make this happen, um, there's no doubt about that. So that's that's the that's the bull case for for the, the longer term the the industry transition.
3: I just want to point out two areas of strength in the market right now. Consumer staples is a group that's winning. Thank you to P&G for that. It's a big component of that index, and what you're seeing is that it's having an effect on. Some of the competitors as well in the household product space, not on food and beverage, but Colgate, Church & Dwight, Kimberly-Clark, Clorox, that's what's working today, this idea that household products more resilient right now in the, in the market, thanks to strong earnings from P&G than, say, some of the other, other staples, and may act as a, as a safe haven. P&G is up 3%, which is a big move for the company, of course, coming out, beating on earnings and sales driven by pricing, reiterating guidance, even though they're gonna take a hit from foreign exchange. And then guys the other pocket of strength here is, is energy again. Yeah. at the top of the market, up six tenths of one percent. No surprise because the oil prices are jumping on the back of the news out of the Middle East. And yeah. if 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 you're looking for a place where investors are expressing the the sort of risks here, it's in oil, especially when Iran is in the headlines. And increasingly, Iran is in the headlines, reacting to the hospital blast that happened in Gaza, blaming Israel, of course, Um, more saber-rattling. There's the impact, 1 percent move. but. You know, it was interesting, Mike, Michael Hartnett, the, the strategist at Bank of America, put out the fund manager survey yesterday, said there was a huge swing in terms of fund managers' exposure to energy going from 1% to 8% overweight stance in October. So that was the most bullish allocation since March.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt the story has, has worked its way through. It works on a bunch of levels. I mean, obviously, there's this kind of you know, kind of risk premium piece of it, but also just the cash flow story and production is up. And, you know, it's, it's kind of working and it was mo- no doubt under owned. Um, also I mean, probably not unrelated to oil, yields are perky again. So yeah. it was a, kind of a sign earlier that they might back off a bit. Uh, and part of the premise for the market finding its footing, let's say in the last week or so, was we thought oil was going to raise to 100. It backed off. Yields seemed like they were, you know, on the express to 5%. They calmed down, but they didn't stay under 4.6. We may have had one close under 4.6, which to me looks like the breakout level of yep. the chart, and that's where it gets uncomfortable above that. Uh, we do have one more, I think, long-term treasury auction today. 20 years. 20 years, yeah. yep. Which is a weird orphaned maturity, but it gets out. there and we've been very sensitive to auction results even though historically they don't really uh, move the the trend but that might be it for the month in terms of the duration that the well
2: we had we had the nasty one last week that wasn't too pretty Uh, we'll see how today along
3: with beige book at two o'clock love the beige book because that really the fed pays very close attention to the color from the different districts and they want to see more evidence that inflation is really coming down and going in one direction and not flaring up again. So we'll watch that. That comes out at two o'clock. It gives you the the snapshots. I think you're increasingly hearing this word term premium, yeah. which we've been talking about on the show for a while when it comes to Treasuries, which is basically just the the extra yield, the extra premium that that investors need to take on the risk for Treasuries beyond just the short-term interest rates set by the Fed. And is it caused by the big deficits that we have? The concerns about about supply that are coming due or is it caused by long-term inflation expectations? We don't really right. know. Or
1: is it a return to the north, which, you know, it was around these levels if you go back before the financial crisis or before the year 2000. And I think logically, if you're owning longer-term debt, you want to be compensated in some form for that. But it is it is funny it's how moving
3: quickly, it's
1: becoming, exactly, it's moving quickly and it's a number that nobody agrees on how to calculate. Well, it. there's no way, It's an really. abstraction. Yeah. So we're in this zone where we have the abstractions of the neutral interest rate, the term premium, potential growth for GDP, and what really is it. And to me, that tells us, we're at the at or near the end of a Fed tightening cycle because we're not really working with tangible cost of capital effects. And it also explains to me why your average investor wants to say, show me something about AI or Ozempic, or some, show me a tangible theme to play that is not about this kind of macro conceptual stuff
2: or, that I need or to Or even worse, about.
3: geopolitics, yeah, which is very sure. hard to price as well.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's a great point. Uh, by the way, we're getting some uh, more granularity on Morgan Stanley's results. Uh, for that, we're going to turn to Leslie Picker this morning, get some highlights from the call. Morning, LP.
6: Hey, CQ. Yeah, that call, that call just ending. Uh, prospects for a rebound in deals really in focus for Morgan Stanley investors today with that stock under pressure. Investment banking revenue for the quarter was 27% lower than a year ago due to fewer completed M&A transactions, uh, but higher block offerings, but those were partially offset by lower revenue from IPOs as well as debt capital markets. You can see the declines there of more than 5%. CEO James Gorman said a resumption of activity really depends on the Fed, saying he thinks there will be one more hike in November, per- perhaps, and then there will be a surge in activity, likely after he hands the C-suite to his ultimate successor.
4: The minute you see the Fed indicate they've stopped raising rates, the m and and underwriting calendar will explode because there is enormous pent-up activity. But boards of directors are sitting there saying, until we understand the cost of financing, it is very difficult to pull the trigger on some of these uh, capital transactions. So I think you're, you're heading into, and unfortunately I'm not going to be around to, to enjoy it, uh, but you're heading into a really good patch here.
6: In terms of timing, Gorman said he doesn't know if it's, quote, six months out or nine months out or three months out, but this thing is going to start turning. Also, he said he doesn't think the Fed will cut rates next year, but eventually they will. When I spoke with CFO Sharonia Yashaya earlier this morning, she did tell me that the firm is seeing increased engagement with clients in the financials industry, energy transition, technology, and AI. So hopefully we can start to see some momentum and deal flow in those sectors, guys.
3: Leslie, how is Morgan Stanley doing in its two big businesses, investment banking and wealth management, relative to its competition? Because when when the growth is lower, it's all about taking share. Goldman had pretty good results on the investment bank yesterday relative to expectations. I know
6: UBS has been pouring into wealth management. So where does Morgan Stanley stand? No, it's a good question. Both Goldman and Morgan Stanley saw inflows during the quarter into their wealth management businesses. So that's a positive for them, especially both of those businesses are looking to grow amid some of the volatility that we've seen in the capital markets division. Now, the distinction here is Morgan Stanley did see a lot lower um, in terms of IPO revenue largely just due to the fact that the three big deals that we saw in September, they didn't have leading roles in the same way that Goldman and some of the other firms did. So as a result, based on those three deals that came to market in September, part of it, of course, is, is timing. Uh, that division didn't help compensate for some of the you know muted activity in, in investment banking, uh, which that gets paid uh, when those deals close. So. Across the street, most banks saw very little in terms of M&A revenue because very few deals happened to close in the quarter. But a lot of that was uh, compensated by um, an uptick in IPO. But if you weren't a participant, if you weren't a major underwriter in the three deals that came in September, then you're kind of, you know, looking at slightly lower fees during that quarter.
2: Uh, well, load this morning, Leslie, of almost 75 is going to be a fresh 52-week low, almost to the day of October 13th last year. Uh, we'll keep our eye on that. Uh, Leslie, thank you. Uh, by uh, contrast, uh, Mike, some of the regional, or smaller banks, yeah. I should
1: say, uh, faring much better. State Street's a good example of that today. Yeah, it's been a bit a mixed picture on those trust banks. Um, State Street is up. Uh, uh, bank, uh, bank of New York Mellon did not have as, uh, as a good a reaction and uh, Northern Trust also a little bit iffy, but I think the um, the takeaway is no new bad surprises out of the banks. And so you can kind of just check off that box. It doesn't really make it an exciting, you know, bull thesis for the group, uh, except to, to argue perhaps that uh, that they're due and that they've managed to weather the worst of, uh, you know, of the duration shock that we got from the spring. Uh, but otherwise, I think it's just about you tell me what the economy's going to do. I'll tell you how most of the banks are going to do. And when it comes to mortgage salient Goldman, Goldman, it's more about deals. But for the rest of them, uh, it's where do rates settle out and uh, and what's the economy look like?
3: That US Bancor, I was I was watching yeah. this one because there was, I mean it kind of the earnings got a little bit overshadowed by this announcement that they won't need to be category two compliant by year end 2024. It's it's a it's a regulatory thing, Absolutely. but it's good news for them. On the economy, the comments uh, from the CEO on the US Bancor earnings call, I went went through it looking about the consumer, it was actually pretty optimistic. They said that the consumers are entering the cycle in strong shape from a balance standpoint, from the perspective of savings account that they have to spend activity, I think they're starting to normalize, but normalize to a pre-pandemic is what I would say as a normal level. There's, everybody's talking about normalizing, they're yeah. not talking about recession. And Bank exactly. of America, Brian Moynihan talked about that as well.
1: There's no doubt about it. That's where we are. Um, and the whole debate is about, does it stop there at pre-pandemic right. normal levels? Right. Or do you have we to normalize
3: before you go into I mean, into everything
1: recession. a bank CEO would be looking at, it's like, oh, what's the average FICO score for our, you know, our exposures? And everything else looks pretty good, um, you know, based on long-term trends. Uh, it is just really about, you know, where we go from here and are there any other rate shocks? That we're going to have to deal with. Uh, speaking of rates, uh, Travelers,
2: obviously the CAD loss is uh, getting overshadowed by the fact that a lot of these companies are able to now to finally get a return. That's almost a three-month high on TRV.
1: Yes, uh, insurance by far the strongest subgroup within financials for a while. Uh, right now. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely a pricing story. It's also the fact that they can earn a good amount on, uh, you know, their own investment portfolio. They tend to be able to be a beneficiary of higher yields in that area. And, um, you know, even things like You know, the auto price, auto insurance pricing cycle has been really positive. It makes the activist push on Allstate kind of uh, fascinating as well. (laughs) So, you know, feeling like there's an opportunity that they're not capitalizing on, perhaps.
3: Industrials and materials are at the bottom of the market today, which is just notable because we did have some strong China data overnight with the GDP number and the retail sales and industrial production all coming out better than expected. These are groups that you look to in terms of sensitivity to China, And we're not seeing much of a reaction there. No, in fact,
1: fact, I was going to say the, you know, the past two days, the trend was small caps over large, cyclical over defensive. You did have this sort of tenacious intraday action in the average stock that did recover. And we're giving some of that back today. So it's an unwind. The Russell's down more than 1%.
2: Yeah, wasn't the the Russell versus the NASDAQ 100 the best relative day since July? Yes, coming off the worst levels in like 25 years. So
1: that's the issue.
2: Take another look at the markets here. Dow down 88. As Sarah and Mike mentioned, it's going to be a busy day in fixed income, not to mention the 20-year auction, Beige Book at 2 o'clock, also Waller at 12 and Williams at 12.30. Uh, you got the 10-year uh, course awfully close to that high from the last week or last couple of weeks of uh, 4.88. We're back in a minute. Take a look at the transports month to date versus the S&P. It has not enjoyed this sort of tepid recovery in October. And some more losses today as names like UAL, which we covered, and J.B. Hunt today uh, hurting the overall index. A lot of airlines taking it on the chin. And what's not a great tape, Dow's down 130. We'll take a short break and be back in a moment. S&P 4350 getting this busy Wednesday underway. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Hey, Bob. Carl, uh, we are 10% through earnings season
0: right now, over 50 companies reporting, and the earnings are beating. They are above expectations, and yet the response today is fairly poor, I have to say, particularly in transports. Let's take a look at sectors. nice to see energy bouncing. we got oil around 87, a few new highs there. Uh, nice to see consumer staples stabilizing after a miserable September. Uh, semiconductors uh, on the weak side, ASML reported decent numbers, but it's trading down 4%. And look at the transports there. So we had today, I'd see United down 6%, J.B. Hunt down 5%. Logistics companies are getting clobbered. So Landstar's down. I see C.H. Robinson at a new 52-week low. I see American Airlines at a new 52-week low. So don't like what I see in the transports, particularly the ones uh, that have had earnings reported today. New highs, well, it's pretty small. It's basically a smattering of energy companies with oil starting to move up a little bit around 8. So Hess and Diamondback, E&P companies, uh, some service companies uh, like uh, Halliburton, uh, as well at multi-year highs, in fact, better than 52-week highs. But that's about it. The problem with the market right now is that there are confusing narratives, and a lot of people don't believe any of them. So there's extremes. There's people who believe growth's going to be strong, we're going to have a soft landing, and there's people who think that we're going into a recession. These do not reconcile uh, each other. So, for example, if you think growth is too strong or growth's going to be great, you would be interested, obviously, uh, in something like cyclical stocks. But cyclicals aren't outperforming at all this year, not even monthly, quarterly, anywhere. The S&P is up 13%. Industrials and materials have been lagging all throughout the year and aren't really rallying much even recently. If you think the economy is slowing down dramatically and there are people who think that, you think value stocks are going to be doing better. They've been a disaster all year. They're not improving any. The S&P growth is up 20%. The S&P value is up 7%. Nothing here. So there's no conviction on any of those narratives right now. The only narrative any Any conviction right now remains mega cap tech. I keep putting up MGK, which is Vanguard's mega cap growth. This is 60% Magnificent Seven that we all keep talking about, the Apples uh, and the Amazons that are out there, the Magnificent Seven. That's basically what this is. This is up 32% on the year. Interestingly, that's exactly where the earnings growth is. So I'll break this down for you and show you why these things matter much, because they're following the earnings growth. The average earnings for this group, the big seven, the Magnificent Seven, is 32% for the third quarter. All the rest of the other 493 stocks, the average numbers are down 4.6%. That's why, Carl, we're expected to be flat for third-quarter earnings on the S&P 500. But it, what's happening here is, in the absence of any other conviction, investors are simply following earnings trends. Stock prices tend to follow earnings trend. And, Carl, that's exactly what investors are doing. Back to you.
2: Right, we talking a little while. Uh, Bob Bassani this morning. Uh, Mike, thanks for the time. Talk to you soon. All right. Uh, Mike Santoli. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street.
3: its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer.
6: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.